So welcome back to Balagan. On December 27th, 2020, Israel entered its third lockdown after failing to contain COVID-19. The numbers rose high even though more than 2.4 million people already received the first shot of vaccine. In the past week, the government decided to extend the lockdown for two more weeks and may extend it again. Some critics say the lockdown was due to the Prime Minister Netanyahu's trials. The corruption trial hearing dated to January 8th was postponed and opposition says that it was the main reason for the timing of this lockdown. But another reason for this lockdown is Netanyahu's coalition allies. Looking at the numbers show that the Haredim are leading with the number of inactive cases with almost 40% of the total population. The police are hardly enforcing the rules among the ultra-Orthodox communities and it's bringing a lot of tension into Israeli society. Why is that happening? And how come none of the politicians say a word about it? That's uh, what I'm going to discuss with my friend Jeff Becker. Welcome back, Jeff. Hey, Kobe. Thanks for having me. So, Jeff, from what you read, you know, about what's happening in Israel, what's your take on what's going on? So it looks like it's a very serious issue what's going on right now. Recently, in the last couple of days, there was a Israeli police officer in the Haredi city of B'nai Brak who was on patrol attempting to enforce coronavirus laws regarding to coronavirus restrictions. And what happened was that this police officer was essentially surrounded by a mob and attacked. And she has gone on record stating that, you know, she feared for her life during this attack resulted in some injuries. So the situation on the ground in a lot of Haredi cities, you know, we're talking about B'nai Brak, Mea Sharim in Jerusalem, the situation there, not good. The virus cases in these cities are skyrocketing. Any attempt to enforce restrictions by the Israeli police are being met with violent protests. And ultimately, none of the politicians in Israel are really touching on this issue until now. I mean, if you think about it, it's been a pretty persistent problem that's been going on for recent years. And the issue with COVID-19 has really expedited it and brought it to the mainstream of the Israeli public. So how they're going to go forward with this, you know, the political implications, the implications for both secular Israeli society and the Haredi society is still very up in the air right now because there doesn't seem like any compromises in sight and any attempted compromise that's been worked on in the past really hasn't come to fruition at all. I agree with you on that. I mean, in previous elections, the ultra-Orthodox did draw a lot of attention and many populist uh, politicians actually took advantage of the unique situation, I would say, with the ultra-Orthodox autonomy within the state of Israel, without getting, by the way, real results. I mean, the last one to do it was actually Yair Lapid in 2013, when Yeshatid got 17 mandates in its first election that they were running. But even Yair Lapid made a U-turn with the ultra-Orthodox politicians, and even though he's now attacking their leadership, but he's doing it in a really, I would say, mild way. There is a true problem with the ultra-Orthodox. On one hand, they want to set their own rules. So they don't follow the state rules in many cases. You can definitely see it with COVID, that not only the police is not enforcing the rules of the lockdown, actually the ultra-Orthodox leadership 
אוקיי, are not following up and they are not collaborating with the policies. Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky, who's the biggest opposition to the lockdown rules, as you said, he's a patriarch in the Haredi society. He's one of the leading authorities and one of the greatest poskim of these days. He says that the biggest threat is not the COVID itself, but to stop learning Torah. And that's why when the entire education system in Israel is shut down, many of the ultra-Orthodox schools and the kolelim and yeshivas are open and people are still going. But you need to bring up the fact that a recent report showed that one out of 132 Haredim over the age of 65 have died from COVID-19. So what could you make of the reasoning there? I mean, why, why is there such an incentive to keep all the Haredi institutions open, even though that it's pretty clear that the Haredim are facing the bulk of the COVID crisis? I mean, they're the ones getting hit the hardest in Israeli society. They do. I will split it to three reasons that I think that are connected. The first one is the unique situation of the Haredim. The Haredim are leading in poverty in Israel. They live in small houses, seven, eight, sometimes 12 or 14 people, you know, live in a two to three bedroom apartment. And it's really hard to really comply with, you know, a lockdown when you live in such a condensed space. So they do need to keep themselves busy. They do need to give the kids the place to run to the Bet Midrash. They have a place to be and there is somebody who's taking care of them. But there is another aspect to it. And that's the fact that eventually the ultra-Orthodox don't really comply with Israel's rules. And they want to have their own autonomy, setting up their own rules. And as I told you, listen, Rabbi Kanievsky said it loud and clear that COVID may be a threat, But stop learning Torah is a bigger threat. And I want to make two distinctions to that. On one hand, the ultra-Orthodox, especially after the Holocaust, they really see themselves as the ones carrying the torch of the halakha. On the other hand, if the rabbis will comply, and that's an assumption, but if the rabbis will comply with the state's rules, then the whole hierarchy of the ultra-Orthodox communities may collapse. And that's a threat for their way of living. And I think that that's one of the reasons that they are afraid to make those steps and comply with the state rules. When you say that if they comply, then the RAD hierarchy will collapse, what do you mean by that? So when you look at the ultra-Orthodox communities, they are keeping themselves segregated from the rest of the population of Israel. They live in their own neighborhoods. They don't really mix with the general population. It's quite similar to what we see in some areas in New York, you know, but you can still see even the workers of B&H, most of them are ultra-Orthodox. Most of them are Hasidic. Okay, the store is closed for Shabbat and, and high holidays, but they still have a day-to-day communication with different types of people, okay? In the ultra-Orthodox communities in Israel, it's completely different. They are completely segregated. They hardly see people who are not from their community. They don't engage with anybody outside of their neighborhoods. I think that in most cases, if they see somebody from another uh, society, I would say, or from another place, it's uh, usually going to be in the hospitals and the clinics. Because eventually, when they are sick, they don't go to the rabbi. They go to see a doctor 
to check up on them. And most of the doctors in Israel are Jews. With the nurses and the pharmaceuticals, actually today I think that you have a majority of uh, Israeli Arabs that are working in those occupations. So they really keep themselves segregated in order to maintain the control and the political power that they have. I guess they do have WhatsApp today, but they are mostly using those communications when it comes to politics or to give strict directions, you know, to all of the Hasidim. And that's a huge power. When you think about the ultra-Orthodox, they are less than 15% of the whole population of Israel, okay? I think they are 12%. But when it comes to kids under the age of 18, they are 39% of all kids, okay? And when you come to political power, they have 16 mandates in the outgoing Knesset, in the 23rd Knesset, but their overall power with those two parties is way, way bigger, and their impact on the total uh, population of Israel is way bigger than their part in the population. And they are afraid that if they will get, you know, modernization and will open up to the world, they will have, their whole uh, society will crumble. So they are essentially a state within a state. Would you agree with that? In most aspects, yes. So what ramifications does this have on the Israeli political system? I mean, you have essentially a third world state within a first world state, but that third world state will need to rely on the first world state to essentially stay afloat economically, politically. How is Israel going to deal with this problem? You know, for many years, the polarization of Israeli society was because of, you know, whether you support the peace process with the Palestinians or not. And that was something that allowed mostly the right wing, but it's not just the right wing, to ignore what's happening in the ultra-Orthodox society as long as they collaborate with the politicians. But it's not a sustainable thing. I mean, when you look at the numbers, okay, if the ultra-Orthodox are now 39%, you know, when you're talking about kids up to the age of 18, they're 39%. Combined with the Arab Israelis, which are also leading in, you know, um, unfortunately in poverty, then you get the two poorest communities leading in... in um, well, okay, dem- demographic increase. Demographic, thank you. And that's the truth. I mean, you need to get those kids to give, provide them tools with getting along in the modern world. And these kids are not prepared for the modern workload world. So, you know, now they're talking about entering, um, you have a couple of colleges that started opening their gates, especially Kiryat Uno. They have the largest Haredi campus for um, a bachelor's degree. But even there, the numbers are not high enough, you know, and the gaps are too big educational-wise. And... With all of the support, you know, the financial support and the social support that the ultra-Orthodox get, it's not sustainable for the state of Israel because you need also for people to pay money and uh, to pay taxes. If all of the taxes go to support the welfare system of a segregated community, then at one point it will get, you know, I think that it's already at the tipping point because people in Israel are talking about it especially when they hear the recordings of Rabbi Kanievsky and they hear how the Israeli prime minister is begging, you know, it's a shameful situation that the Israeli prime minister need to, uh, you know, beg the ultra-Orthodox to join the general effort. So now it seems 
more than ever that politicians are really starting to tackle this issue. I, I know Avigdor Lieberman, secular right-wing politician, has been really on top of this issue for the past year. But now more than ever, you have people like Yair Lapid jumping back into the mix. So is there a desire among the secular Israeli population to create secular government with the Haredi and the opposition so that they can actually tackle these issues? And, you know, for instance, not spend state funding towards community, which isn't necessarily generating revenue that can be taxed and that the state of Israel can use. I will say that. I'm not putting the blame, by the way, on the Haredim. They do what they do because they want to and they can, okay? I'm putting the blame on the politicians, not the Haredim politicians, because they are actually a great civil servant for their communities. They get them the money, as you say, you know? They show them the money. But all the secular politicians, you know, from the Likud, from the labor in the past years and this years, most of them are speaking out of a populist, you know, only to get the popular vote. And they don't really try to bring, you know, the Haredim into the table and talk to them about how they can keep some of their traditions that's on one side, but on the other hand, to be like the ultra-Orthodox here, who are actually working and not everybody is studying the Torah. The only one who's actually brave enough to speak in a non-populistic way, and you may be surprised, is Sofer Shelach, who actually, at the moment, he's not crossing the thresholds, and we still have, you know, it's on February 4th, as we discussed before, that's going to be the date where we'll see who joined which list, and I'm actually putting my money that Ofer Shelach will go with Ron Khuldai, the Labour Party, and that will be some sort, maybe Aron Zelicha, I'm not sure, but that's probably going to be one joint uh, list. But he's the only one who's talking about that, that we don't need to enforce the Haredim, for example, to join the IDF. But we do need to discuss with them on how they collaborate and how they share the do's and the rights. Most of the politicians don't speak that way. I mean, Yair Lapid, he's always the last one to go on the cart, you know. Avigdor Lieberman was the first one to step against the Haredim, but once again, Avigdor Lieberman never tried to negotiate with them when it's not of his interest. And Yair Lapid, once again, is talking in Sismaot. He's just throwing uh, sentences to the air because eventually the struggles that Israel is facing are actually not sustainable. And COVID will go away. And if you will continue working out with this, you know, Haredi autonomy, then it's not good for the state of Israel. And it's actually not good for the Haredim themselves. I mean, when you speak to ultra-Orthodox people, a lot of them are embarrassed with the situation, but they will not go against the rabbis. Actually, there is one, I would say, brave voice that was heard this past week, which is uh, Yehuda Meshi Zahav. Even though he's from Neture Karta, which is one of the most extreme ultra-Orthodox streams, he won the Israel Prize a couple of years ago, and he's the founder of Zaka. I don't know how it's called in English, but that's the organization that helped with picking up uh, human remains in, you know, in terror. You know, if there was a bomb exploded on a bus, then they would come and pick up, you know, the human remains and identify the DNA and everything. 
So he's truly trying to embed in Israeli society, even though he's keeping his religious way of living. And just this week, he buried his mother. Two weeks ago, he buried his brother who died out of COVID. And when he was doing the um, eulogy for his mother, he was saying it clearly that if the Haredi leadership will not take extreme measures, then the death rate will continue to go up. And that they need to be responsible, you know, ונשמרתם לנפשותיכם, you know the meaning of ונשמרתם לנפשותיכם? ונשמרתם לנפשותיכם is something that Israel is like to always say when they are talking to ultra-orthodox, but it has two meanings. I'll read the whole pasuk. ונשמרתם מאוד לנפשותיכם, כי לא ראיתם כל תמונה ביום דיבר אדוני אליכם וחורב מתוך האש. Okay, it's in Sefer Dvarim, and it's talking about maintaining your physical health. That's the first and the original meaning of this sentence. But the ultra-Orthodox are taking it to nefesh as soul, and not just the physical. And for them, as I told you before, with Rabbi Kanievsky, for example, what they are saying, you know, and that's all of the Hasidim, by the way, that's all of the Hasidic groups, they say, the soul... For them is learning the Torah. So I know we've been talking, a lot of it sounds doom and gloom as one could argue that this is probably the biggest issue that Israel's facing more so than the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But do you think that what's happening right now, I know you said that COVID will, will come and go in Israel, but do you think that COVID could serve as a specific precedent for the Haredi community, maybe for a lot of younger members of the Haredi community who will see this and it will inspire some change in their mindset as to how they act within their community and outside their community with secular population. I really hope so, but I'm not counting on it. You can actually see that there are a lot more from the younger generation of Haredim, people engaged in communications and have, uh, you know, uh, smartphones, even though it's forbidden. But usually it won't be in the center. They are, not, they are not representing the majority. And you can see minor changes in the Haredim communities in Israel, but the big leap need to be done by the leadership and the politicians. And I don't see that happening, even though Netanyahu, I would say that he made the Arabs kosher suddenly. You know, the Israeli Arabs, as a, now you can add them to the coalition or count on them, or, you know. But I don't see that happening because it's too convenient for the rabbis. They can hold their communities because they need them for the kitzbaot, for the financial support. And as long as the state doesn't really provide answers and solutions, then we will continue seeing these things that the ultra-Orthodox are keeping their autonomy the police cannot enforce the law in the ultra-Orthodox neighborhoods. You can see things that are not related, but you have some ultra-Orthodox that joined the army. And if somebody is coming, you know, if those soldiers will go back home wearing uniforms, they will be attacked. And the police cannot defend them. It's a crazy situation. So ultimately, it sounds like you have more of a negative outlook on the future regarding the rising Haredi demographic and the lack of ability to immerse them into Israeli society while being at the same time, you know, they, they'd be able to keep to their religious traditions. 
I mean, if you had to recommend something to the Israeli government right now, what would be like a specific political coalition that you think would be able to get this done? You mentioned Ofer Shelach, but obviously he's just one person. I mean, what would be your recommendation to the government as to how to fix this solution? The first thing, okay, is to sit with them in an open way and not, you know, with the mics and cameras and to figure out a way which they can keep their ways of living in one way. You know, I'm not enforcing opening the streets on Shabbat, for example, you know, by force, because I respect, you know, the fact that you have 100% of the population who doesn't drive there and they're keeping the Shabbat, so that's fine. But it should be a live and let live. And some of the things will have to be enforced, I mean, with power. But on the other hand, you need to ban all of those demands that they will go to the army. You need to figure out, you know, a golden path when they can support their societies. Kids at the age of 18 to 21, you can take them and they can help, you know, with elders. They can help in schools. There are plenty of things that they can do without, you know, joining the IDF. And I think that's something that if Israeli society in overall will do the switch, is something that can build some trust. But once again, on the other hand, you have things that you need to take the control over from the ultra-Orthodox leadership. And the only way to get it is if you will have a secular collaboration, okay, of a non-Orthodox government that will really take care of things without being populistic, I will say. Because if they will try to be populist, you know, it will only bring to more clashes with the ultra-Orthodox. And eventually you don't want to exclude them completely from Israeli society. You have the interest for the long existence of the state of Israel, for its survival, that they will be a part of Israel society. But for that to happen, they need to understand what's their share in the mutual responsibility, where their responsibility lies. And you would say that this is something that Israeli politicians, maybe not publicly, but internally recognize to themselves? Of course they do. Look, if we take uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, you can take from him that he's very intelligent. He knows what's going on. He knows what's going on with the Palestinians. He knows what's going on with the ultra-Orthodox. But he's ultra-conservative. So he's not willing to take a step that will hurt his, I would say, immediate interests. He will not sacrifice his uh, immediate interests for the long-term needs of the state of Israel. And he's not unique by that. It happens to most politicians. When politicians try to make a change, I would say it uh, in a sad way. Look what happened to Rabin. And on the other hand, look what happened to Barak. Barak was trying to make reforms. He made them in a stupid way, you know, and he paid the price for it. So Netanyahu is ultra conservative. That's what keeps him in power, by the way. He's a brilliant politician. You can say that he's the number one campaigner in Israel, seriously. Like, you see his opposition. They were afraid to speak to the joint list. He's speaking clearly now to the Arabs, you know. We'll talk about that in a different episode. Why is he doing that? Because for him, it's also a win-win situation. But he knows what needs to be done with the ultra-Orthodox. He made some steps. If we'll go back to 2003, when he was the Ministry of Finance under uh, Sharon, then he made the necessary steps to get Israel out of recession. And one of those steps really hurt the ultra-Orthodox. But it was a necessary step. And it also, when you look at the numbers, 
after they made these cuts, these budget cuts, actually a lot more ultra-Orthodox started working. It sounds like the, the two biggest things to come out of this are, you know, national service of allowing Haredi to, you know, volunteer in society as opposed to, you know, forcing them all to get drafted into the army and also being a little bit more conservative and allocating budgets to the Haredi community, you know, being not as lenient as they are now to entice more members of the Haredi community to go into the workforce. Yeah, but that should be combined with a big change in their education system. They cannot have their own private education funded by public funds, okay? They need to learn math and science, just like our brothers and sisters here in the U.S. Ultra-Orthodox here, they study math and science, and they go to college here, you know, and they gain a general education so they can work and get real jobs. And in Israel, they don't get those necessary tools. And that's something that needs to be changed. You say we're at a tipping point. It seems like, I mean, on the ground, on the street, it doesn't look too good right now. But uh, I mean, you know, as you say, things always need to get worse, but they do always get better. So just have to... At one point. Yeah. I never know when there is going to be the point of no return with the state of Israel, seriously. And it always seems like, in a way, it goes down and down and, you know... The politicians, you know, it's poor leadership in Israel. Seriously, we are in such a leadership crisis in Israel. Netanyahu's biggest success was that he's not just leading, you know, when you look at Netanyahu, he's not just leading the Likud at the moment, okay? His acts actually infect the Arab parties. He infects Yamina and Smutrich, you know, uh, Bennett and Smutrich that now are running, uh, right? And he also is the ultra-Orthodox. He is, as a politician, like the number one politician, the most talented one. And on the other hand, the only one who, in a way, is endangering his crown is uh, Gidon Saar, that gets maybe half of the mandates that the Likuds get in the polls. But he's the only one who may have a chance to form a coalition, but we'll have to wait and see what will be the election uh, outcomes. But even him, because he knows that he has good relationship with the ultra-Orthodox, he's not going to make the necessary steps. So you can't count on any politician at the moment to take the necessary steps to to really work things out, unfortunately. But we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, I mean, it's an important topic. I mean, I'm glad we were able to cover it. I'm sure we'll be covering it more going forward. Yes, definitely. I want to thank you again for joining me today, Jeff. I want to thank our listeners. And we'll see you soon. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and wanted to thank you for joining me. If you like my podcast, feel free to rank it and share it with others. I also invite you to subscribe to my podcast so you will get updates when a new episode is on the air. And last but not least, I invite you to check my website, Balagan, www.balagan.ltd for more content about Israel's history and politics. Bye for now, and have a great day.